And uh, Romans chapter 2 is where we're at. We're going to read 1, chapter 1, verses 16 through 32, because it leads into chapter 2 so well and sets us up for um, Paul essentially pulling the rug out from underneath of us. So Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And then into chapter two. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. People magazine once ran an article called The Syndex, where they once pulled their subscribers and surveyed different attitudes towards sins. And so the readers would quantify how guilty they would feel after committing various acts. And the numbers were all tabulated and each sin was given what People Magazine called a sin coefficient or a syndex. 
If you felt a one, you felt blameless in the matter. If you were a 10, you were guilty to the max. Now, murder came up worst of all sins with a sin index of 9.84. Rape was next at 9.77. Some of the sinister sins like child abuse was a 9.59. Drug dealing was an 8.83. Embezzlement, 8.49. Adultery, 7.63. And at the other end of the sin spectrum, sins people view as just benign or just kind of something you can gloss over would be selfishness with a 4.92. Gossip, it's just a 4.1. Jealousy, 4.08. And lust of the heart, nothing at all. Almost a Dennis Prager if you've been watching him lately. Lust of the heart, it's nothing. Not even a 3.63. According to people, vice and violence deserve the highest index, where sins of the heart came in lower. But in Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul tells us what God's views of sin are and how they're so different than man's views. God has a different index. In chapter 1, we read of the hideous heathen. And as we just read it and have spent so many weeks in it, we approve of the condemnation of all of those sickos of chapter 1. And we left chapter 1 feeling a little bit smug, didn't we? Right? A little bit of moral superiority. And you know what? The religious tend to get a little bit snobbish. We're a little more morally bred as the religious. Now, Tim Keller says in something that was so helpful to me this week, he says, Paul's critique of the pagan world and lifestyle would have been roundly supported by any Jewish person listening to him. But they would have assumed that they were exempt from God's condemnation. They were law-keeping Jews. And that is exactly how religious people would listen to Romans chapter 1 today. They would say, yes, of course, God's wrath lies on the immoral and the pagan, those who live a life of debauchery. We have the word of God and we live by that. We're not condemned. Religious people will seem to agree with Paul about Romans 1 and will be missing the whole point. Chapter 2 comes around as a bucket of cold water to the religious person. It's an absolute masterstroke. I've never been very good at it, but years ago I took a little course online by Brian Chappelle. It's Christ-centered preaching. And he tries to teach you how to pull the rug out from under people as you're preaching. In a sense, it would be we're reading chapter 1 of Romans and we're really getting into how wicked and sinful and disgusting all the Romans ones are. And we're all nodding our head. And then eventually a good preacher would be able to be like, pull the rug out and say, it's you. And I always try to do it. The more I try, I'm never good at the, the bait and switch with you guys. I think you're just too wise for it. You know where I'm going with it, right? As we teach. Now, we understand by reading chapter two and studying two as we get into it, before receiving grace, we need to be shown our need for it, that we are guilty. 
And it's been said that in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans, that Paul goes to court. He's wearing suit and tie and has the briefcase and has his hair all slicked back. And he is going to prove that sinners are guilty of sin. In chapter 1, we've seen that the heathen are guilty. But in chapter 2, we're going to see that the Hebrew is guilty. That would be the religious person. In chapter 3, you might say, I'm not a heathen and I'm not a Hebrew. Well, you fit in just perfect by the time we get to chapter 3. Because 3 just tells us that all are guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Colin Cruz said, having, a, uh, having established the culpability of humanity in chapter 1, in this section of the letter, Paul proceeds to show that those who take the high moral ground, in particular the Jewish people, are also culpable and have no special immunity when it comes to the judgment of God. The key text in this passage is, for God does not show favoritism. It turns out the end of chapter 1 is written to expose the idols of the religious person as much of those who are the irreligious. In fact, I stole Tim Keller's title to this chapter for this sermon in that the religious need the gospel. The religious need the gospel. And so he starts out the chapter by saying, Therefore, you are inexcusable, oh man. You're without excuse. We saw that about the pagan in chapter 1. Many times we read, you are without excuse. You are without excuse. And now Paul turns to the religious person and says, oh, you too. You are without excuse, oh man. And the man that Paul is writing to is, the, uh, is, is kind of a hypothetical individual. He's not speaking to one particular person so much as he's speaking to the religious person. Now to that, to Paul, it was the Jew in Rome that would be reading this or, or be hearing it, visiting that church on a Sunday morning. And to us here in this amphitheater, we have a whole different type of religiosity, right? Uh, some sort of religious self-righteousness. Now, now that may be our patriotism, that may be our pedigree, that may be how we've been born and raised, that may be that we grew up uh, going to a special denomination that has a firm foundation going back a couple hundred years. I'm Baptist, I'm Lutheran, I'm, I'm a Calvinist, you know, I'm a Pentecostal or whatever it may be, or I'm Calvary Chapel and having seen the Jesus movie that just came out, you know, and that's me, you know, and we just kind of rest in our religiosity and the way that we've been, you know, uh, trumpeting rules. I'm all about the rules and I'm all about the law. And Paul's going to show that you might say you're all about it, but in your heart, you've never been about it. Or even if you broke it one time, you're guilty and culpable of breaking all of it. So we need to just humble ourselves today and realize we are without excuse and without escape. Whoever it is who judges the heathen and the pagan out there, whoever it is who evaluates them, the language speaks of, however you're judging, whatever you judge these other heathen in this world about, you condemn yourself while you're judging. While you're condemning them, the fingers are pointing back at you, 
And you're pronouncing a sentence upon yourself. The language speaks of you're throwing down. You're throwing down a judgment or a condemnation, but towards yourself. I don't know exactly. Isn't it something like every time you're pointing a finger, you got something like three pointing back at you or something like that. You know, I think that's essentially what Paul is saying. Like you're pointing down at everyone else for all of their wickedness and all of their sin. But if you are just externally a religious person and inside you're not obeying that, even in the thoughts and intents of your heart, there are fingers pointing right back at you. You are without excuse and you're condemning yourself. For you who judge, you are practicing the same thing. Joseph Glanville was a 16th century writer, philosopher, and clergyman. And he said, quote, while all complain of ignorance and error, everyone exempts himself. Everyone else ignorant and, and full of error. And it, yes, yeah, like not you at all, though, huh? And guys, I'm just talking to myself just as much as anybody else uh, this morning. Well, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder But whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause will be in anger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be in danger of hellfire. So quoting there from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus essentially takes it from merely external obedience and rule keeping to internal obedience through the position of your heart. And he says, you might say you've never murdered anyone, but if you've been angry and bitter in your heart towards someone, you've murdered them in your heart. You might say, I've never committed adultery, which was a 7.6 on the syndex for People magazine. But Jesus says, if you've ever looked with lust in your heart after a woman, you're guilty of, of committing adultery. And, uh, and, and, and so Paul touches on that when he speaks to the external rule keeper when inside uh, they have been breaking the law. They have been disobeying the Lord and they have fallen short of his glory. There's an old Dutch proverb that says he who compares himself with another is generally easy on himself. And as we are just so quick in this day and age to just be angry and bitter and judgmental and condemning to the world that we see around us, we go so easy on the things that we've been practicing regularly from our youth that are also an offense and an affront to God. John Stott put it just in a golden quote here. It's a paragraph and let me read it to you. Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human characteristic, namely our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We are often as harsh in our judgment of others as we are lenient towards ourselves. We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious When it's ours rather than theirs, we even gain a bizarre satisfaction from condemning in others 
the very faults we excuse in ourselves. Then Stott quotes Freud, where Freud called this moral gymnastics a projection. But Paul describes it centuries before, before Freud ever did. And, Paul, and John Stott ends this by saying, this projection enables us simultaneously to retain our sin and our self-respect. It's a convenient arrangement, but it's also slick and sick. It's slick and sick to be looking at everyone else and pointing the finger at everyone and disgusted and oh, guffawing and scoffing. We're in Proverbs right now where it speaks so much about a scoffer. And, and lately I've been uh, having to watch all of our shows at home with subtitles on. Uh, we're... We have, you know, five children and they're not super quiet. So if anything's on at home, usually you're going to miss anything that's said on the screen, especially if there's like a British accent or something. What they say? I don't know. What they, I don't know. You know, so we have to have sub subtitles now. And what I've been loving about the subtitles is, um, for one, if someone's outside at night, it says insects trilling. It's like, oh, I never knew insects, insects trilled. I think something like that. Kenny Box used to do that so well. Insects trilling. But also, all the time, people will be having a conversation, and someone in the conversation will go, oh. Oh. you know, and it says in subtitles, scoffs. Scoffs. Oh. And I never noticed how much people scoff until it said scoff underneath them in subtitles. You know? And... And that's us when we are looking at the world and we're reading Twitter and Facebook and we're you know out to lunch with a friend and we're just talking about the stuff going on around us and what our sibling did and what our you know what our school district did and what our you know um, you know what our governor did or what our you know just every relationship and it's, oh, 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 oh. you know sound like a middle school kid. Oh. Just kidding, middle schoolers. You know, I love it. But it's slick and sick to scoff at the world when inside you have a conviction in your heart. It is the Lord that's touching your heart going, yeah, but remember what you did? Remember how you talked about that person? Remember, remember how you looked at her? Remember how you've been coveting him? Remember how you find your identity in this? And it just shows you're without excuse. And it is just the gift of the Lord to bring us to Romans chapter 2 today to humble us to say, oh man, I do do that. I'm inexcusable. I am unrighteous. We can be those with double standards. Society is full of double standards. You know, uh, it's been said when people use metal detectors, they're called treasure hunters. But when I do it, I'm a thief and I, quote, need to leave the war memorial. <laughs> or burn a body at a crematorium and you're being respectful for, to a friend. But do it at home and you're, quote, destroying evidence, you know. 
It's the double standards of the world. By the way, what do you call a gangster who lives in double standards? A hypocrite. Okay. Right? These are the jokes, people. That's what you pay for. All right, so hypocrisy, double standards. That's what Paul is just slamming down right now. And Luke 18 speaks to it when he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, but they despised others. It says two men went up to a temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. Right. The Pharisee stood and prayed this to himself. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Right. Extortioners unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector, right? In fact, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector who's standing afar off wouldn't even so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, woe is me, a sinner. And Jesus, when he told this story, he said, which one of these two men do you think went home justified? The guy who was self-righteous and had the polished look? Or the man who humbled himself before God and recognized his sin and said, be merciful to me, God, a sinner. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Problem of Pain, That prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. It's the proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous that are in that danger. My sin looks a whole lot worse when someone else is doing it. Recently in the men's Bible study, Chris has been teaching us about King David and the adultery with Bathsheba. And you remember when Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him on it and tells him about, you know, the man that had a whole herd of sheep, but he went to his neighbor and took that guy's precious widow whammy and stole it from the guy and slaughtered it to to feed a, a visitor to his house. And King David said, who would do such a thing? Dirty sicko, kill him. Justice should be done. And Nathan the prophet says, that man is you. You could have had anything you wanted, but you took one of your best friend's wives. Did you get it? Our sin looks a whole lot worse when somebody else is doing it. In Matthew chapter 7, it's one of the most quoted Bible verses of all time. It's our society's favorite verse. So simple when it says, judge not lest you be judged. Oh, the world loves it, don't they? But the problem is is that the book of Matthew doesn't end after chapter 7, verse 1. It actually keeps going, and and Jesus doesn't address the the issue of examining each other for the purpose of holiness. He speaks towards the issue of condemning others with a hypocritical heart when you yourself are living out that double standard. With the same judgment, you're judging somebody. You got to know you're going to be judged the same way. So, man, you better make sure that that plank has been removed from your eye and that you're walking right with the Lord so that you can help get that plank out of your brother's eye. Paul is implying 
that this hypothetical dialogue partner, oh man, in verse 1, is guilty of precisely the same transgressions for which he's pronounced judgment upon another. So his judgment of the other is tantamount to condemning himself. As we wrap up verse 1 here, got to read Keller on this. So Romans 1 and 2 are setting before us the same two people that Jesus does in his parable of the prodigal son. There, Jesus gives the story of a father and his two sons. There's a younger brother who loves sex with prostitutes and squanders the father's money. He's licentious. He's materialistic. He's disobedient to his father. But there's a second son. He's obedient. He's the compliant one with everything his father says. And yet the point of the parable is that they're both lost. They're both alienated from the father and they both need salvation. And Paul here is saying the exact same thing. There are two brothers, the heathen and the Hebrew. They're both lost. They're both condemned. They're both worshiping idols. And he turns to the older brother in Romans chapter 2. And he says, you people are trying so hard to be good. You think God owes you because you're better. But you are lost too. Verse 2. How was that for an introduction? Even got a gangster joke in there. Okay. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? I almost wanted to title today's message, What Are You Doing? What are you doing? Because... Our works are very important when it comes to judgment and the judgment that God will have towards us. Now, we're not saved by our works. Amen. We're saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done. We're saved by his works. Yet we will be judged according to works. Why? Because those who believe and have been saved obey. Those who believe and have been saved by the grace of God, they will have fruits of righteousness where now they begin living out the things that God's called us to. And so you're going to want to notice as we go through these verses, the words doing, do, the word works. Okay. And here you see in verse two, uh, you think this, oh man, you who judge Here's the word practicing. That's an action word, right? Practicing such things. Doing the same. You think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Martin Luther said, The righteous invariably try to see their own faults and overlook those of others. They are eager to recognize the good things in others and to disregard those of their own. That's the righteous. On the other hand, the unrighteous look for good in themselves and evil in others. So you think you who are judging, you only see good in yourself, you only see the evil in others. You think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? This is a bit of a, 
a strong passage for us because multiple times we see all kinds of facets to the judgment of God. You think you're going to escape the judgment of God? You guys, judgment's a reality. And maybe we'll get into it today, maybe not, but there, there are two different kinds of judgment. There's the judgment to condemnation. And then there's a judgment like an Olympic rewards ceremony type judgment that Christians will go to. There's two different types of judgment. What type of judgment are you going to go through, I wonder? Apart from Jesus Christ, you'll be judged by the judge of the universe. You'll be cast into the prison, the torment of hell forever. Or will you have all of that dealt with by the blood of Jesus? He took God's wrath towards sinners upon himself for you. And instead, you receive a Bema Seat reward-style judgment. But those who rest in their own righteousness, it's the judgment of condemnation. And he says here, you think you're going to escape the judgment? One way or another, there will be a judgment. His judgment is coming. Cannot be escaped. Or, verse 4 says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And so he's talking to someone is Jewish in the immediate context, a hypothetical individual, very self-righteous, pointing the finger at everybody else, thinks he's going to escape the judgment for the very things he's doing himself. He's practicing these things. And now Paul just, he says, this guy's not only acting presumptuous, but he's actually showing contempt for God's kindness. Do you actually, how's he put it there? You despise the riches of his goodness? I mean, you're acting so religious and you're forgetting, man, it's the goodness and the kindness of God that makes us want to run away from sin, that makes us want to repent, that makes us want to practice holiness and goodness and righteousness. You're just treating God in contempt and Man, remember last week the word God had for us in Hebrews? You're just treating his kindness and his, the blood that he shed for you like just a common thing. What a horrible, horrible attitude. What a horrible behavior. And, and look at the words that describe God here. He's good, which speaks of moral excellence in character and demeanor. He has forbearance. You keep living in sin and practicing sin and, and just acting like you're righteous. You're resting in your righteousness. I'll tell you what, you despise that God has forbearance and has been showing self-restraint to you and tolerance to you. You're actually hating that he's long-suffering, it says there. Now, Peter tells us why God is long-suffering. See, a lot of times people think, well, God hasn't judged me yet or struck me down yet, so he might approve of what I'm doing. He doesn't approve of what you're doing, but he's patient. And uh, Peter tells us that the Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any of us should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. So why has God been so patient with you? Because he's hoping 
You're noticing how patient he is. And that you'll snap out of it and, and say, oh my goodness, you've been so good. You've been so patient. You've been so long suffering. Your forbearance is so great. And I have just been abusing that. And I just right now want to repent because any moment the day of judgment will be coming. Look at verse five. But in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So according, I love this accordance, according, accordion, right? Right. It's all, all these keys and buttons and things that work together. And you know what? Working together with your unrepentant heart, you're doing something. You are treasuring up or storing up or reserving for yourself violent, passionate judgment against yourself. These two words, hard heart, impenitent heart, are always and only used of those who are guilty of idolatry. And here Paul uses it for the religious hypocrite. You keep moving on in, in unrepentant idol worship and your heart is getting more calloused every time you do it. You're stubborn, unrepentant, and every time you're doing it, not only are you building up calluses, but you're building up wrath against yourself. Like imagine, you know, a freshly built Hoover Dam. And think of that day that the Hoover Dam started to be used. I don't know really how it worked. Maybe they built a little part and a little water came in and they kept building it. I don't know. It's been a while since I've watched the History Channel documentary on it, you know. I like to think they built the thing and they're like, open the gate, boys, you know. And woo, you know. But, you know, probably it was something like they built it. And there was a little river already kind of heading through that way. And, and then that river just starts being stopped up and built and built. And pretty soon there's a little pond and the pond turns into, you know what, a reservoir. And that reservoir is just a big lake and it's all the way up to the brim. But there's so much pressure against that dam. And you know what? The Lord has just been pushing back and holding back his wrath. But the Bible tells us one day... He's going to remove that barrier and he will judge unrepentant sinners. And Paul's just been saying, man, why, why do you hate God's patience so much? Use his patience to your advantage right now and repent while there's still time. And so in this, before we move on, any moral person who's just satisfied with their spiritual state in and of their own works. You deny the doctrine of righteousness through faith alone. You think you don't need to be given righteousness because you already have it by your own works. You don't think you need the gospel, so you don't get the gospel. You stand up proudly on the last day and stand in front of God. And the Bible says that every mouth will be stopped and everyone will be found a liar 
And the language that we see in Romans and other places in the scripture, essentially there's a sort of, whether MP3 or video of their life that plays before them and in a sense shows all the actions they did in and outside of the body and they will be condemned. And if that's you today and you rest in your own righteousness, one day your mouth will be stopped before God if you're trying to defend yourself and you will be found a liar. And I like what Tim Keller, he gives us three things, three ways I found um, helpful to find out if you are that person. Listen to these three things. Number one, do you feel that you're a hopeless sinner whom God would have a perfect right to cast off this minute because of the state of your life and your heart? Boy, that's a, that's good. That's a healthy place to be. That's just kind of assurance right now. Okay, maybe I don't think I'm in that place of the Romans 2 fella. Because you realize I am nothing. I've got no righteousness of my own to bring to the table. I'm completely at the mercy of my Savior, Jesus. Second thing Keller says, when you consider how those outside your church live, do you shake your head and judge in your heart? Or do you think my heart is by nature just like theirs? It just shows itself differently. Now, isn't that, do you see the difference? And I'm going to be honest with you. I found it hard to study this text this week. Why do you think I found it hard to study this text this week? Probably because I'm, my bent is the Romans too hypocrite. And so it takes some like digging. And I just appreciate this. Like I'm pretty good at scoffing at the wicked person out there. Ugh. But by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit has done a work in me where I do realize I'm just like them. It only looks different. And I need a savior. And here's the third thing. Do you deep down think that there is no record of your life or that you can stand before your own judgment when that video or tape is played? Or have you accepted that your own values will condemn you and that you will need to be given right standing that you could never achieve yourself? Man, I hope that you would know that your own actions have condemned you and you're in need of righteousness outside of yourself. I had a wonderful privilege this week of going into a nursing home and sharing the gospel with a 92-year-old man, a native of the area, a good old cowboy, well-respected, and it just was unsure if he'd ever received Jesus into his life. So I was called in there, and, and uh, uh, I ended up going back visiting two times that day. He was sleeping the first time I went, and then the second time I went in so I could have private time with him. And I just sat at his bed, and I held his hand. Uh, I, I held off on holding his hand until until he... I don't usually start out that way. <laughs> I have done that, actually. What am I talking about? <laughs> really breaks down the walls. Um, but I said, hey, has anyone ever told you the gospel? I don't, I don't know if anybody ever has. <laughs> well, sit down and relax, right? Um, and I just told him the gospel. And as I'm talking, he's like, man... I've always wondered that. I've always wondered this and that. 
And then I, I told him, man, I told him the story of Hal Moore, who's famous because he's the general from the Ayadrang Valley, right? He was a colonel then, I believe, from the We Were Soldiers movie with Mel Gibson. You know who I'm talking about? And Hal Moore, later on in his life, he's this war hero, and he's old, and he's about to pass away. And he was interviewed for a magazine, and someone said, uh, General Moore, do you think that you'll go to heaven? And he said, I just hope by the end of my life, the good things that I've done outweigh the bad. And I'm telling the story to this old cowboy, you know, and, and I'm telling him, yeah, he just said, I hope the good things outweigh the bad and that God will let me in. And you know, this fella, he just like perked up. Yeah, yeah, the good outweigh the bad. I hope, you know, and I was like, oh, but that's actually the wrong way to approach God. I pulled the rug out from under him is what I did. And, and he's like, oh. And I said, because no matter, the Bible tells us, no matter how much good we think we're doing, even if it's one little tiny sin, that little sin weighs so much, it will always outweigh the, the good that we've done. And that's why Jesus had to come. And he did the good works and he never sinned and he died and he shed his blood so that his perfection could be given to everyone who believes in him. And I was just so rejoicing because by the end of about an hour long conversation, I got to hold this man's hand and I got to lead him into salvation. And I got to begin like a little time of discipleship with him. And so I just wonder here though, how many people rest in all their good works and hope that they would outweigh all the bad. And the Bible just says, it just can never be done. You must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. It says there at the end of verse five that the righteous judgment of God will render, be rendered out to each one according to their deeds. And that's where we're going to end today. We're going to have the worship team come back up. Deeds, doing good, doing, doing, practicing. What are you doing? Both outside your body, what have you been doing? Have you been practicing sin and unrighteousness? Maybe you are the heathen from Romans chapter. What are you talking about religious? I'm not religious. I'm the Romans one guy or gal. What have you been doing? Your sin condemns you. Chapter two, what have you been doing on the inside, in your heart? And Jesus addresses it when he speaks to the Pharisee, the religious person of his day. And he calls him a hypocrite. And he says, oh, you hypocrites, you religious people, you wash the outside of the cup or the bowl. Oh, it sure looks good on the outside, doesn't it? But inside, you forgot to have the inside clean. That's where all the stuff goes on anyways, is inside the bowl. You need to have the Lord do a work of cleansing on your inside, in your heart, in your inner man, your inner woman. Jesus, oh, you look so polished on the outside. You know what? 
You look like a tomb that's been polished and whitewashed on the outside. All decorated for the funeral. But inside that tomb, what's it full of? Dead men's bones. Rot and decay. And so it's just a good word for us here in Prineville. We're probably a lot of our culture on the outside. It looked, looked like pretty clean culture, huh? Look like, man, we got some pretty good morals in this country. Man, what are we doing? Our track record speaks for itself. That we have wicked hearts in need of a holy Savior. Will you bow your head with me and pray? So Lord, today we just come afresh and confess our sin before you. Lord, we know that you know what we've been doing. And even though we may seem to be the more religious people of society or the more upstanding people of the world, yet, Lord, we have approved and practiced disdainful things And that disobedience, that willful sin, we know that we're going to have to give an account for that. So Lord, just right now, we want to get right with you. We confess to you the deeds that we've done the ways that we've rebelled, the times that we thought we knew better than you and that you were wrong and just trying to rob us of fun, the times that we listened to the voice of vice and passions and pleasures rather than listening to you. And all of those wicked things and all the ways that we said yes to sin and no to God, even we in our religious polish, Lord, we are in desperate need of a Savior. And so we turn to you today. Maybe just today where you sit, you might lift up a hand to the Lord right now and say, Lord, he's been speaking about me and my life and my behavior and my heart and my thoughts and how I think about others and how I compare them to myself. Just lift up your hand right now and say, Lord, that's me. I've been scoffing at them when I've been doing the same thing. Forgive me, God. Let the blood that you've shed wash over my sin. Give me a clean heart and a pure mind and a will that wants to obey. I repent of my sins. I turn away from my sin. I want to run from them. And I just ask today that the Holy Spirit would lead me as to how to do that. How to cut it off. 
how to discontinue it, how to cancel it, how to amend, and how to repent. Thank you for forgiveness. Let my life live a life that reflects a change for your glory, Lord. You stand with me and we'll close in this last song. Go ahead, Johnny.